Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Uh, we are Homo Superior. We're doing a special Secret Records. I'm Brent Wingate. I'm Kaylin Batia. And on this issue, we're discussing season one of FX's hit show Fargo, which actually came out in 2014, and we are reviewing it now as a series leading up to the review of season four, which is currently airing on FX and Hulu. Um, season one follows the story of the seemingly meek Lester Nygaard, who coincidentally cross paths with the chaotic Lauren Malvo. After Malvo kills Lester's bully, Sam Hess, a string of dominoes begins to fall. Lester kills his wife and covers it up. The Fargo crime syndicate sends two of their uh, hitmen to investigate the death of their business partner. And Detective Molly Solverson, or she might be deputy, Molly, or is she also deputy? She's deputy. Okay, yeah. deputy Molly Solverson uh, works to piece the increasingly complex mystery together while being constantly undermined by her supervisor. Of course, there are fun side stories uh, like Molly's romantic interest in fellow officer Gus Grimley, a biblical story involving a supermarket magnate and a wealth-crazed widow with two idiot sons. Let's start off with our Homo Superior classic. Why is this the best? Why is this the worst? Kalen, why is this the best? Why it's the best is this is a show that shouldn't work. Um, if you've seen the movie Fargo by the Coen brothers, it is considered to be one of their best. It was nominated for an Oscar when it came out in 1996. It uh, made a star out of, um, and why can't I remember her name right now, um, Frances McDormand. Frances McDormand. Uh, she's so famous, I can't even remember her name. Um, and, you know, the show's just, I mean, the movie is just ingrained in her mind uh, with the sort of the aw shucks, you know, upper Midwest a- a- affect uh, and the, um, you know, the, the very macabre uh, film noir story that it tries to tell. I remember seeing the previews for the first season and I was thinking, there's no way it can be good because the Coen brothers aren't even involved. It's by a guy uh, named Noah Hawley, who at the time I had no idea who he was. Uh, I didn't know any other shows he had done. Obviously, Legion hadn't even existed as an X-Men's Legion, which was also on FX. But the cast was intriguing. Um, You know, it had uh, um, Lester Nygaard was played by uh, Tim from the UK office. Uh, Lorne Malvo uh, is obviously played by Billy Bob Thornton. Um, and so it's like, okay, this is not so bad. And then I ultimately ended up watching it and the show. Wait, wait, wait. I want to go back a second. Yeah. Your, your benchmark for Martin Freeman is, uh, Tim from the UK is office. The office. Like he's, he's been in a lot of like really bigger stuff than the office. Sure. But that's the first thing I remember him uh, okay. from. He will always be Tim. He will always, always be Tim. Okay. Uh, regardless of, uh, whatever American accent he decides to put on. <laughs> but, um, I finally watched the show, and it the way it just unravels as a as kind of a film noir told in ten parts, um, with the the sort of aping certain Coen Brothers um, uh, sort of tropes, but kind of doing its own thing. I was utterly mesmerized. Uh, I I couldn't stop watching. I think I watched all ten episodes in like one go, which is not not advisable by any stretch of the imagination, but it is such a phenomenal show uh, with well-rounded characters. Um, and one of the things I love about it really is 
like these sort of like gritty uh, prestige dramas is they spend so much time building up the villains or anti-heroes that your protagonists tend to look kind of, you know, weak by comparison. And the show doesn't do that. And we'll right. get into that a little bit more. Uh, but I, that's why I think it's the best. Why do you think it's the best? I think um, <clears throat> one of the things that I love so much about the movie is the style of humor is um, there's a certain level of passive aggression. There is a certain kind of um, a folksiness. There's like there's jokes that that they they only work because of circumstance and because of intonation and the what the the feelings that people have behind them. There's not really a punchline where they've said some roast joke that's hilarious. Um, that is some of the hardest comedy to write because it requires that you know the actors and directors and everyone really gets the vibe and atmosphere of the story and i think that this show captures that so perfectly it it has a true disdain for suburban living and like i think of malvo you know later in the show when he is impersonating a dentist and he's created this fake life Mm -hmm. that whenever he wants to say something to like perk someone up and also respond affirmatively to them he always says aces Aces. it's just like oh that is absolutely something someone says in order and they think that they're like really cool and fun and it is just it is coming from a character who hates that reality so much that you can feel the sarcasm without any specific sarcasm put in um what do you think uh the worst that's really kind of hard to say because um it it's such a well-realized show. I think if you're just basing it on the first episode, there is the what you think is the mistake that a lot of prestige dramas make, um, where the men are well-rounded characters and the women are have no agency and they tend to be these sort of like shrill harpies. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you are introduced to Molly, but you're not you don't know how um, intelligent and how uh, what a moral compass she is on the show. Uh, uh, because the swerve of uh, Vern, who is the first chief, uh, getting killed, by the way, spoilers for the first season, uh, getting killed in the first episode by Lorne Malvo when he comes to Lester's house. The, I mean, the, virtually all the women are just, you know, caricatures or they're just, you know, or they're kind of just awful people. Um, and that, like, I remember watching that part of it and I was like, great. It's like another, you know, Skylar. It's another, uh, um, uh, uh, what's her name from the Sopranos? Um, Edie Falco's character. Um, uh, but you know, like you have that kind of, um, they're there just to like nitpick the hero. Um, the show then I think redeems itself in the first episode in like the last five minutes you realize or last 10 minutes realize Lester actually is not somebody you should be identifying with. Uh, his wife, even though she nags him, is not a villain. Um, and then ultimately, when you keep watching the show, you see Molly as a well-realized character. But in that first 45 to 50 minutes of the first episode, it's like, Ugh, this could go really bad. And especially when you don't know the pedigree of the creator, uh, you know that he can write well-formed uh, women characters. Uh, but, you know, not having that that information before that like it could it, it could have gone bad very very 
very easily. That is a very interesting take because um, I kind of think that the way that the women are written in the show outside of Molly leaves them a little bit flat and a little bit disappointing. Um, I think if you look at a lot of the other female characters, they don't have as much nuance, I don't think. I mean, Lester's wife is a little bit one note, but also she's a short-lived character. Um, Vern's wife, Ida, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that there's much to her other than that she has a baby and she is a victim. I mean, it kind of makes her a uh, woman in the freezer type character uh, because she doesn't really have any agency after that. Right. Um, I think that, um, uh, did they call her the widow Hess? Um, yeah, I don't know that that's great. Um, but also she as a character kind of came off as just being one note. She, she doesn't really love her husband. She doesn't really love her kids. She just wants money and to be taken away from being, you know, a, a stripper. I think that, I think that's actually a very good point. Um, and it's more that um, there just aren't enough women characters. So Molly carries, you know, the brunt of it. But the exception to what you just said, besides Molly, is Gus's daughter. I think Gus's daughter has a lot of agency. Um, it's a very quiet role. And, but like the actress who plays her, and she's, you know, pretty young uh, when this season airs, just you can immediately tell what kind of character she is um, just by her facial reactions and right. the way. And, you know, she just, you know, has a few words for her dad. It's like, clearly she's like, my dad's a square. He's so norm core. Uh, but she clearly loves him because he's been a single dad for most of her life. Uh, and when she immediately kind of like, when you have the fast forward to one year later in the latter part of the season, uh, she completely cottons to Molly. Like she's like calling her mom. Yeah, they could they could have made some stupid boring storyline about a character who's like not really jiving with the new mom but yeah they they definitely did a good job of balancing the actual characteristics of those two and making it feel like a real family yeah um i'd say though my actual worst is the show has a hard time balancing um kind of poorly written coincidence versus the act of God that I think is so typical in a Coen Brothers film. Really? Give me an example. I think perhaps the worst is the scene where the fish fall from the sky. Yeah. Is that the fact that the fish fall from the sky is not my problem. It's that the father uh, Stavros Stavros is driving back to meet up with his son and his bodyguard, his bodyguard. Yeah. And they are driving in opposite directions on the same road, but ostensibly going to the same place. And I do not know how roads work that that kind of thing can possibly happen. Oh, it seems to me so crazy and also unnecessary um, because he could have, he could have driven home and there was like a police officer waiting there for him to tell him that this had occurred. Um, and he would also have this kind of like distance to it where it feels like, you know, the, the fish attacked his son or something like that. That it was it was a punishment specific 
to the biblical story, having him show up there, it f- feels contrived and I think robs the story of some of the 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 mystery that you want to have um, to is is there a is there a deity affecting the decisions? You know, is there should there be someone I look up to to figure out right and wrong? Yeah. Is there a God in the machine? Yeah. Basically. Um, that's an interesting point. I, um, I definitely was taken out of the show sometimes when the magic realism came in and then that was the first time I watched it, but having watched it this season now a couple of times, three times now, um, I, I feel like, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into parables here in a second. I feel like the whole first season is a parable unto itself. Uh, sure. And so, uh, that gives me a little bit of, um, I'm more forgiving of these sort of acts of God that happen in the show and the coincidences that happen in the show. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the Cohen because the, this show tries to take a lot from other Cohen brothers' films. Yeah, and there's a lot uh, of of their work that has these kind of things, which in the movies can seem out of blue. They can seem very coincidental, but they are also um, part of a um, philosophy of justice and judgment that the Coen brothers view, you know, their characters as, uh, as experiencing. And so I think that, you know, <clears throat> with that in mind, it's not as, it's not as crazy to have that kind of coincidence. Uh, I just thought of what probably what might be my least favorite thing of the show. And it's not even bad. It just took me out of the show is like about two thirds of the way, sh- uh, way through uh, the season, when you're introduced to two FBI agents, yeah, played by Key and Peele, yeah, and uh, when the show aired, and I watched it maybe about a year later, Key and Peele was a show on Comedy Central, and I was like, what, what is this? I mean, they're both phenomenal; they're very right. talented guys, but having the two of them made it feel very stunt casty and it just took me out of the show. That's funny because mine came a lot earlier with Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, who was the fitness instructor yeah. for um uh Stavros's wife. Stavros's wife. Um <clears throat> so we we've already done some of the uh you know kind of parallels from the TV show to the movies. Yeah. Um what do you make of the way this works as an adaptation, how, how it, you know, kind of forms as a story, you know? So again, um, when the, the show first was being advertised and, you know, people started kind of talking about it, there was some murmur and chatter on the internets, um, about how this is an, uh, adaptation of a movie. And I immediately thought of, you know, there are certain shows that have done that for, you know, semi-successful to very successful movies, Friday Night Lights, I think, is a good example of a show based on a movie based on a book. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, for you vampire fans out there, um, you know, the show was Joss Whedon's way of doing the movie right because he felt the movie got away from him. Uh, it's not the, what he want, envisioned on screen. And so when you normally see stuff like that, it's um, like, oh, um, it's creators wanting to retell their story in a long form format yeah. uh, movies tend to be you know two hours give or take fargo the movie is actually it's actually quite short it's only about like 95 minutes to 100 minutes right um it's very tight um and then you know you have like you know shy of 10 hours like maybe nine hours or so to tell this longer story um 
I was I was skeptical, but I thought it worked really well. And then when I rewatched the movie just this week, um, I hadn't seen it since it came out. So it's been like 24 years. That's a long fucking time. It's a long fucking time. And it's like, I liked Fargo, but it wasn't my favorite Coen Brothers movie. And so I never went back to it because I felt I was watching it during when I first watched it. Like, I think I, I didn't even see it in the theaters. I got it on like VHS when I was a kid. And I remember thinking, oh, this seems this is fine, but it's overhyped. And I think during that time, I was very much a like Tarantino kid. Yeah. And like, you know, Pulp Fiction was my favorite movie. And you were like 35 at the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, 3,500, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a goddamn vampire myself. Um, but, um, you know, Fargo didn't really stick with me in the same way that it did others. But seeing the movie, um, I was like, wow, this is actually really, really well done. And then I didn't pick up on the fact that the movie and the show are related. Yeah. And you have Steve Buscemi's character who gets all the money uh, from the dad uh, of the woman he kidnapped. Um, and Reed? he buries the money in the snow next to the fence. And Stavros, uh, who is the magnate of the grocery store, um, Phoenix Farms, like his story is he finds the money. And so the show and the movie exist in the same universe. Yeah. And they have their own coincidences, which makes me, again, think that this is not... The magic realism is fine. It's 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 a show that's more of a parable than something that is told in a um, a uh, kind of more of a factual, uh, you know, like uh, matter of fact, cinema verite sort of way. So, what do you make then of the the way the movie has it set out at the beginning, where it says this is a true story, and um, I do think I think that that was like one of the first times a major film tried to falsely claim that it was a accurate representation yeah um because a lot of people kind of thought oh like when did this happen what what was the real story and it's right. it's i think loosely based off of something but not really at all i mean it's there was a murder in fargo but yeah the extent to which it uh you know matches up is completely well made up yeah for a story that is this kind of like it's it's real but it's not actual how do you think that the TV show translates? Um, I think of the introduction uh, for every episode. This is based on a true story. I think is just an homage to the film. I think that's all it is. Because uh, the film itself feels very much like it could have happened. The show feels otherworldly at times. Yeah, there's there is no way... Uh, you know, like 800 people in this town are getting murdered. And then... You know, it's not a national news story. Everyone, the FBI isn't constantly trying to follow every single lead, you know, more regularly. Um, right. It, that, there is a certain part which you, you, that it's kind of extra show that you can't buy into. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but also, like the other parts of magic realism, you mentioned the fish. Uh, I think towards the end of the season when Gus sees the wolf and the wolf is the one who, like, points out that's Lauren's, like, safe house. And then when Lorne, you know, has is like recovering from the bear trap wound that Lester leaves for him, he sees the wolf, and then that's the signal that Gus is in the house ready to kill him. Right. So it's like, okay, um, this is this is a little otherworldly, and it's that's okay. Yeah. See that that part I think um, highlights another, <clears throat> I think, kind of oddity about the relationship between the movie and the TV show. Which is that the TV show like does like little winks to the audience about the movie, but they're about the most. Some of them are the most bizarre parts. Yeah. Like, 
Um, so in the movie, Margie also coincidentally stumbles upon the car that she's been looking for while just driving past. Yeah. Um, there's uh, in both the movie and TV show, there's a character who drives to a parking lot to drop off a sum of money yep. and then has a disagreement with a toll booth operator. Yeah. Oddly specific, completely unnecessary. I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of that other than, hey, you remember that you remember that toll booth scene? <laughs> I think uh, forgive this comparison because I think he's much more talented. But Noah Hawley kind of has that Ryan Murphy affect at times where it's just like, I really love this. I want to like kind of wink at the uh, audience a little bit. And this, here's how I'm going to do it. Um, unlike Ryan Murphy, he won't design an entire season of a show based on getting Stevie Nicks as a guest star. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm actually okay with, because Stevie Nicks is the best. Look, but... if I could write a season of a TV show to meet Stevie Nicks, yeah. you know, Although, certainly I, you, I'll be the first one. I mean, Ryan Murphy and Noah Hawley are actually a pretty good comparison because they both had shows on FX that are anthologies, so. Yeah. Um, Margie and Molly, uh, number one, the names, and yeah. I believe, uh, I can't remember what Mar- Margie's name is. It's like Sunderson. and Gunderson. 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 And Solverson. And Solverson. Very is, Nordic, you know, like upper Midwest, you know, they're stocky women. They're both pregnant. Yeah. Uh, Molly towards the end of the uh, end of the season and the one year later, um, fast forward. I, I forgot Margie's na- uh, last name uh, until I like rewatched it. Um, so when I was <laughs> watching this, I thought it's kind of it's kind of annoying to have a character who's a a, a police officer trying to solve a crime named Solverson. Yeah. It's like, okay. Uh, is that Scruff McGruff, the crime dog? Like, <laughs> I would watch that for the fifth season of Fargo. Uh, the other thing about, um, I think the show um, kind of separates from the movie a little bit is even though there are similarities, the show has um, with Lon Ma- Lorne, Mar- uh, Lorne Malvo, excuse me, as a tormentor type character. Right. Like he, the movie doesn't have that. Uh, and the show, he very much feels like a biblical devil type character. Or a golem. Golem. Something, a creature summoned in order to complete a task. Um, but in this case, he is, no one particularly summoned him. It was like, you didn't say no. Uh, That's funny that you say golem, because I think of Lester Nygaard more as golem. So, like, wait, not, wait, what do you, when you're saying, I'm saying golem as in the Jewish. Oh, I was saying Gollum as in from the Lord of the no, Rings. No, no, Gollum as in the the Jewish uh, creature. Creature that, that that you, made of clay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I actually don't think of him that way because he is not somebody who has been animated to do a task. Sure, sure, sure. He's more of like somebody who comes in, he has a job to do, but he gets off on instigating little events being a shit starter, just being the devil on your shoulder. I mean, I think the best example, obviously the Lester's the best example, but like the kind of the smaller example is when he's at the motel and he tells the guy who's like shoveling the snow, why do you let the motel manager talk to you that way? You know, if somebody did that to me, you know, what I did was I just pissed in his gas tank. Car didn't work well for, you know, forever. Right. And he does, the kid does it. And then he calls, Lauren calls the manager saying, somebody's pissing and somebody's in the, in a car in the parking lot to get the kid in trouble. And it's like, he's just a shit starter. And right before that. He's Loki. Right before that, the um, 
owner of this motel told him no pets allowed. And his immediate question was, well, what if I had a fish? And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Dude? Yeah. He's like, well, what if I had a pet fish? And she's like, I, I don't know, man. And he's just, he, for him, it's just a curiosity. Yeah. It is like, he said, he described himself as a student of institutions. Yeah. He wants to go around and just give a little push to things in the direction that they're not supposed to go. He's a little bit like uh, Anton Chigur from No Country for Old Men. For sure. Same barber and everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but Anton was more of pure, just like a pure, pure malevolence. Not to say that Lauren isn't, but Lauren is more like he's got a bit more mischief in him. And in some ways, he's kind of more appealing to watch in that way. Yeah, so um, we mentioned uh, you know some of the parables before. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about a few of them, because I think there are kind of two kinds of parables that we get in the story. The first are the, the strict, I'm going to tell you, it's like I'm telling you a joke. I've right. got a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. There's obviously some moral there. And then the other are the, the kind of natural parables that we have, where someone's talking about something that happened in their life and it's not clearly related to what's going on or at the, it's very tenuously related and it's this mini enclosed um discussion almost yeah. like uh, i think of those as being like the royale with cheese uh kind of uh, yeah talking things yeah so um let's let's do the first one so what do you make of the the rich man who opens the paper one day and sees the world is suffering and then he you know gives away all of his money he gives away one of his kidneys then he wants to give it all away the doctor said that that's suicide so he commits suicide and has he saved the world you know is there still evil and um <clears throat> you know there's this the discussion between uh gus and his neighbor is you know only a fool thinks that they can solve the world's problems but uh, you know, don't you got to try? Yeah. So what do you make of that parable um, in relation to the story? Do you like it? Again, it was one of those things that I found very odd my first time watching it, and I really kind of appreciate it more the second and third time uh, because it set up the character of Gus's neighbor, the Jewish man, as like almost otherworldly to like as a counterbalance to Lorne Malvo. Um, like when... Lauren comes to, you know, back to the street where Gus lives and he's trying to overhear like Gus's daughter through the, you know, the walkie talkie. Clearly he picked up on that in the first episode when he gets pulled over by Gus. Um, you know, having somebody who is an otherworldly angelic force for good. Uh, and that's what the neighbor is. So him telling that kind of story makes a lot of sense. And, um, I think it's important because Gus has to be able to ultimately realize that he has to do stuff to make a difference. And he doesn't necessarily have the capability. He's not the best cop in the world. He doesn't have the instinct for it. He's not a detective by any stretch of the imagination. He's a bit of a coward at first. Yeah. And he's got good reasons to be a coward. Sure. Yeah. But like, you know, him describing, I remember the scene when like he meets Molly and he describes Lorne Malvo and Molly goes, well, why didn't you get his information, his driver's license, his insurance, all that? And and he's just like, well, 
it was his eyes, you know, like it was, I was scared by him. And it's such an honest moment of like somebody who is a coward, but admits he's a coward. And that makes him maybe not a coward. And him, uh, his reaction to the story makes, is the punchline without it being comedic. Well, you got to try, don't you? It is like, um, you know, you can't be afraid to try to save the world, even though the world may not be able to be saved. Right. I, for me, the parable um, is an interesting one because I think the the closest the story really gets to kind of expressing that as, you know, in its own way yeah. is when Gus calls Molly before the massive kind of, uh, you know, hunt for uh, Malvo and begs her to not go out. Yeah. And I think that what that is trying to say is, you know, <clears throat> there is no shortage of suffering in the world and um, it, it still requires people to do brave and dangerous things in order to make it better. And you can find balance between giving everything you have, you know, it, it's a, it's a personal choice, but you can find balance between giving everything you have and doing nothing. Right. Um, <clears throat> so what did you think of, um, I think my favorite parable was toward the end when Molly is in the room with Lester and Lester wants to go home and Molly is warning him of the danger mm -hmm. and they have this fight where Lester just keeps pushing it. He keeps pushing it and he, he wants to know why is it that Molly dislikes him? Yeah. So she tells this parable of a guy who is on, rushing to get on a train. He drops one of his gloves he gets on the train. He realizes that he's dropped one of his gloves and the train is already moving. So he can't get off to go get his glove. So he opens a window and he drops the other glove on the station mm -hmm. so that the two gloves will be together in case someone found them. Right. When you first saw that, what was your initial reaction to it? Um, one, I think that's also my favorite parable. Um, so I agree with you there. I, I think Molly there is telling... Lester of a story about selflessness and what she sees in Lester is somebody who is just trying to preserve himself um, that there is a killer on the loose um, you know he's not going to stop she says that to him you know he's not going to stop um, and she wants Lester to make the sacrifice of like just being honest to be able to capture this person and he cannot see beyond his nose. Lester is actually very cunning in his own right. And I want to get back to him a little bit, but because his entire modus operandi, his entire motivation is just self-preservation that he cannot see the world, you know, try to, he cannot see uh, the greater good. He cannot see like how he can, make a difference. He's a very myopic character. Yeah, so I that is very much in line with um, Noah Hawley's kind of construction of it and the way he thought about it. Um, because in, in the original writing of the scene, he was going to have Molly explain it to him. But he decided to cut that part because he said, if he's not going to get the parable, then what is explaining it to him going to help? Yeah. 
And I think that was a very smart call. Yeah, I agree. I, sometimes shows like that, when you explain something, it just ruins the moment. Yeah. And I'm glad he was smart enough to trust his audience. I, my, I, my interpretation, I think, you know, was wrong. But my initial interpretation was that she's describing, you know, you need gloves. Uh, they're, they're an important thing. Like, there's a reason why this person had them. Yeah. The fact that he lost one kind of accidentally. And then he's treating this thing that he might need like it's, oh, well, it's, I lo- I've already lost one. What do I care? It's unimportant to me. Yeah. And so he gets rid of the other one intentionally. Yeah. Because he thinks that this, this, the need for gloves doesn't matter to him. Yeah. Um, just like Lester thinks that he can get away with anything yeah. because the rules no longer apply to him. Rules are for suckers. That order is for idiots. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but obviously, I think that there is, you know, it, the other the interpretation you have is probably more accurate. Um, so uh, if you want to talk about the do you want to talk about some of the natural parables? I think they're they're OK. Let's uh, the one. Let's quickly go through them. Yeah. So one I really like is. Um, um, so Ida Thurman, police chief Vern's wife, while um, they're at the wake for Vern, Molly is washing dishes. Ida comes over and they're kind of just talking. And, you know, there's a little bit of discussion about how how Molly really needs to pursue this case. And, you know, she's already gotten a little bit of pushback from the uh, new police chief, Bill. Mm-hmm. And Ida tells a story about Vern, one of Vern's former police chiefs, who is this idiot and one day he's out at his car and a giant hailstone comes and just crushes his skull mm-hmm. and he dies instantly mm-hmm. kind of out of the blue uh what did you think of that um is it just a story about coincidence or i think it's more of ida's way of telling molly you were always Vern's handpicked successor and obviously they gave it to bill because of seniority and you know um, Vern didn't get a chance to, you know, groom you officially in the way that, you know, he would have been able to if he had remained alive. Um, and I think she's just telling Molly, look, you know, Bill is an idiot unto himself. Like, he's a very nice man. He doesn't have the brain power to do this job. And you don't know what's going to happen to him. It may not be a hailstone. It may not be whatever. Something eventually will get him out of the way, and it could be you. Uh, so you need to be good police, yeah, um, and continue to do what you're doing. That's what I got out of it. See, I I thought of it as in part Ida kind of resigning herself to, you know, it's it it death is random most of the time, yeah, and um, these kind of things they can happen to good people, they can happen to bad people. And part of it is her, it, it, it seems so silly. It seems so arbitrary that a hailstone comes out and kills someone. Um, <clears throat> but we can try and understand it. And she, she trusts in Molly's intelligence so much that she really wants her to try to make sense, even of things that are seemingly incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, another one was um, the, do you know... The human eye can see more shades of green than any other. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they explain it within the episode that it's because um, of predators. we needed to be able to differentiate between 
different shades of green on the savanna or whatever yeah. to avoid predators. Um, what do you think of that, um, especially as it relates to where Gus ends up um, by the end? Like, it is very important that at the very end he says, I solved your riddle. Is Gus predatorial? Where where does that stand? Um, Molly solved the riddle. Like, Gus didn't. Molly gave him the answer. Um, you know, uh, she's the one who just, like, immediately, just off the cuff when he posed that to her. Um, I can see... I'm really kind of glad that the show didn't didn't have a conflict between Molly and Malvo, uh, even though they're opposing forces. I think it's stronger keeping them apart, yeah. even though they're working against each other um, in many, sometimes indirect and sometimes direct ways. And having Gus be the one who does it, uh, because he, uh, in the first episode, again, um, you know, as I mentioned before, he is the one who stops Malvo. Malvo scares him, and, you know, this is his chance to redeem him. But he can only redeem himself because he's gotten help from Molly. Uh, and I, I think that's a really, really important... It's a really important uh, feature of the show um, that it shows just how strong a character Molly is, but it doesn't make her, quote-unquote, badass, uh, you know, in you know, in a show that it would have, like, pu- completely pulled me out of, of the narrative that Noah Hawley was trying to tell. I think that what that parable that kind of riddle does is it it shows how the the it shows how the show thinks about Malvo's perception he thinks that there are predators and prey and what he mistakes is that human beings can change and flip between them mm-hmm. so there's a certain sense in which we watch Lester like there's some switch that goes off and we see him become this kind of monster maybe that monster in Malvo's construction, that monster was always there mm-hmm. and it was society that tried to contain him. But <clears throat> Gus is this kind of, he is a good, if somewhat, you know, scared figure. Mm-hmm. And for him to do something, which is um, so violent and aggressive and it is predatorial to kind of wait for your prey to be weak in order to kill them. I think that, him saying that to Malvo is an acknowledgement that anyone can be a predator. Anyone can be a prey. We're not set in stone. Um, it's, it's prior actions and our own choices that make us who we are. So uh, I have an interesting question kind of related to that. So I mentioned, you know, Malvo and Molly are polar opposites, right? Uh, one is a completely, you know, malevolent force for evil. One's a force for good. And then you have characters like Lester and Gus, who are more human. Uh, sure. Um, do you feel like they are almost like disciples of these like pure characters? Um, and because of the influence of the pure character, that's what kind of um, influences their actions. Uh, Gus becomes completely loyal to Molly. He marries her. You know, they move in together. You know, he's going to be the father to her child. He has a great relationship with her with her father, uh, who loves being a grandfather for the very first time. And you have someone like Lester, who is in some ways disciple a disciple of Malvo, right? But like when he has the one year in the turn in the one year later part of the season, where he feels like 
he's more self-actualized. Like the old Lester would never have stood up for this. The new Lester, when he like confronts him in the bar and in the in the uh, the elevator in the hotel, it's like he he constantly pushes, 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 and pushes. Right. Not realizing what exactly he's doing. He thinks that he like has controlled. He can control this, and it's like this is too powerful for you. He is the Gollum from Lord of the Rings, and the ring itself is Malvo. It is pure evil. Yeah, I, I think that's a good uh, kind of way of looking at it because these characters are um, that what they are trying to show. I think is that if you are self-serving, it is um, it is a cannibalistic process. Lester's descent into, um, you know, his becoming that Wall Street type, like willing to kind of lie, you know, but charismatic and interesting. Yeah. And um, beta know, to alpha. Yeah. Kind of ignoring, flaunting the rules mentality is is the thing that progresses his ultimate demise. And it, it it's true of the demise. It's the same as for the demise of his um his second wife yeah and i think that when you look at molly's relationships um you know even the people who she argues with the most in the show still clearly like her yeah they're like yeah she can be a pain in the ass but they have a lot of respect for her yeah and um you know there's there's the kind of idea of like yeah molly is the person who is good and can also stare in the face of evil kind of like her father and the characters who are also in the I want to help other people, but maybe I can't face hard truths are still people who want to. It's a self uh, filling kind of. Um, yeah. Principle. Yeah. Um, let's get away from parables. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the politics of the show. Yeah. Um, I think you pointed out um, how how this might be interpreted as a conservative show so the show um takes place in mostly in rural minnesota you know obviously goes into north dakota a little bit um you know the biggest town that it really shows is duluth uh which is not a big town if you've ever been to minnesota yeah um but for this show i would not know of duluth (laughs) (laughs) um i've only been to minneapolis and st paul so i can't really say i've been to any of these places but um the the way that Bemidji, mostly Bemidji, is shown is like this idyllic small town. You know, it's mostly white because it's upper Minnesota, right? It's, it's real America. It's real America, you know. Um, and it um, it's this idealized form of what America should be. And this is what like conservatives like to say. You know, oh, the, you know, the bustling cities, like, with their gays and their minorities and their, you know, transgender and the hookers and all. Like, this is not real America. Yeah. Uh, Real America is, you know, Main Street and this, you know, these people being kind to each other like a Frank Capra film. The irony there is, is the characters who are the antagonists, both Lorne Malvo and Lester Nygaard are what conservatism is today. Uh, Lorne being the uh, sort of um, 
you know, it's just somebody who is there to instigate stuff. It's almost like he's like a like Donald Trump, but smart. You know, he's somebody who just wants to um, troll the libtards. Troll the libtards. He's just like, what can I fucking get away with? What? Can, who can I piss off? Yeah. Who can I? Who can I manipulate into like giving me this perverse pleasure? Because I'm bored and I want to see that happen. Uh, whereas Lester Nygaard is somebody who is, um, again, feels like uh, he's got a lot of um, just resentment. You know, like he's always been like the butt of the joke. You know, uh, when Sam Hess like picks on him, you know, at the very beginning, it's like um, it's like like he is entitled to being able to push back. And when you see the turn, well, one his ob- brother says, "Sometimes I tell people you're dead." Yeah, like Christ. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. And you know, his his first wife picks on him. He has this turn, and it's like he's like he has the sense of entitlement that you see a lot in um, a, what I call a lot of Donald Trump supporters right now, because uh, the people that support this president for the most part isn't because of like a set of like policy things that they agree with. It's because they feel a certain amount of resentment that they have been shit on in society, whether that's true or not, in most cases not, uh, that they feel that they have to punch back and, um, you know, go from beta to alpha. And um, I think it's, it's, I don't think Noah Hawley necessarily intended for this show to be that way, but it's an interesting uh, dichotomy between the idealized form of conservatism and what conservatism currently is in America. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's something there, but a couple of things, you know, maybe maybe it should be a slightly different way of looking at it because I think that, as I said before, the show has a hatred of suburbia. And I think that there is there is part of the show that tries to point out that some rules are arbitrary and other ones are important for the foundations of our society. Like rules like you should try and do good for example don't yeah. be malicious and murder people uh for no goddamn reason um <clears throat> um sorry i lost my train of thought um so suburbia suburbia is evil yeah oh yes that that part of society what society does is it tries to make things work together and for people who are like interesting and different, it tries to round out jagged edges and make you like everything else. There's less friction and conflict. And Malvo comes in and says, no, 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 no. That is, that is made up. You guys have some set of rules that aren't real. Yeah. And I don't have to follow those. And again, you're suckers for kind of believing in it. And so the problem on one side is that there are a bunch of people who like comfort no matter what. They don't want to think about hard things. They they don't want to deal with difficult issues. They just want to live a quiet life and avoid actual reality. Yeah, That's a problem. On the other end are the people who think that any form of order is itself an issue and that they can flaunt those rules regardless of the consequences. Yeah. And so instead of it being like how conservatives might idealize anything, I think it's about how we all, you know, try and exist as human beings in a world not designed for us as animals. Yeah. Like 
it's not normal for us to live in fucking freezing wastelands, you know, as a species. We're we're not equipped for it. So we have to build stuff in order to like survive in this kind of like hellhole. That's that's a really interesting point. Um because that it reminds me or it makes me think of the character of Bill who ends up becoming the chief after uh Vern gets killed. Uh Bob o- Odenkirk, who's a phenomenal actor, plays him and he is that character that you describe of uh, somebody who doesn't at first you you see like he is has a very narrow world view of how the world should work. He um can't even see blood uh when he's at a crime scene. Oh, he always vomits. He always vomits. He doesn't have he's like this is like this is um completely invading my, you know, two-dimensional monochromatic world. Um and then when he becomes chief like he looks for the absolute easiest solution uh, for why certain things are. First, it's like, oh, like you know, this was a, a drifter coming in from out of town. Yeah, it's probably a drug thing. It's a, probably a drug thing. And then ultimately, when a Nygaard is implicated, uh, when uh, Lester frames his brother uh, Chaz, yeah. which is truly evil thing, awful. Um, the second most evil thing I think that uh, Lester's done. Yeah. Um, you know, he ultimately just like, oh, well, all of this makes sense. And he can't fathom even thinking that Lester is guilty because he knew him in high school. His response was so funny where he goes, you know, we, we got the guy. We got, you know, the brother Nygaard. We went out and we had drinks and everything. And Salverson starts giving all these explanations for how that doesn't make sense. And he goes, we, we, we got the guy. We, we had the drinks. We had the <laughs> drinks. It's like, this is done. Yeah. I have moved on. And he, he had a, you, you had, a, I had a Greyhound and he had a, yeah, like, th- that doesn't complete a case. <laughs> I, I, I just, I love that scene so much. Uh, but he is sort of conservative with a small C. He cannot, he cannot think, out, I hate using this, this cliche, but he cannot think outside the box. And the character. Uh, it's to, 20, uh, 20. We, th- we say think outside the bun. Go on. Oh, oh. Uh, are you like here from Taco Bell? See, <laughs> si. okay, uh, you get our Taco Bell. Um, it, the character obviously gets redeemed. It's a little bit, um, it's a little bit, I think, heavy-handed. But when he is, uh, you see him adopting one of the lost boys from Sudan. Yes, who has a crazy parable for himself. Yeah. yeah, crazy parable himself. But it makes you realize that Bill is not somebody you should hate. He is not an antagonist. He's frustrating. Because he can't see the whole picture, and he gets angry at the people who do see the whole picture. He won't. He won't let them do their work. Yeah. Uh, and he, um, you know, he wants to be good. He wants to do good. Um, and so he, in a way, is an idealized form of what conservatives say Americans are. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who are like that. Um, uh, or maybe they were, you know, maybe that was a form of conservatism or, uh, uh, you know, uh, your traditional, like, average Republican voter at one point. And then he ultimately, I think, redeems himself at the very end of the season when he says to Molly, it's like, I I can't do what you do. I couldn't imagine any of this. You have to be chief. It can't be me. Very Tommy Lee Jones in the very end of No Country for Old Men. Yeah. A lot of lot, lot of other Coen brother influences in this film. Like he is, this world is not for him. Um, so as we kind of wrap up, um, 
let's talk about the fish poster. What if you're right and they're wrong? Uh, so many meanings to me. Um, obviously, it's the poster in the basement of Lester's house where he kills his first wife. Um, and that's what he constantly looks at to be able to chart his own way. But the poster itself means more to me for someone like Molly. Where Molly is the one who is, you know, as we were talking about before, she's the lone individual on the Bemidji police force who sees, like, something is up with Lester. This isn't adding up. She's got to keep at it. And whereas Bill and the rest of them are just like, well, we figured it out. This is what this is. It kind of, like, you know, it fits in this neat little box. Uh, And she's the fish that looks the other way. That's what I got out of that poster. Yeah, I, I think it's um, it was a smart choice to have Lester run into that poster specifically and get his blood stained on the part where there's the... When he hits his head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it also, I think, on a very surface level, is a perfect poster to have in a Midwest home. Like, uh, it's the cat hanging from a hanging their baby yeah and it's just oh god re- it's like, the live laugh love stop, oh my bones like christ this is it's so it is such a simple worldview to try and think that myopically to yeah. go what if what if you're just right and everyone else is wrong like there's there have to be shades of gray yeah. and shades of green and there's got to be like, yeah, shades of green. Sure. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Put a pin in it. Yeah. Uh, why add anything to that? Yeah. Um, the last question I want to ask, I think there is something about, you know, there is obviously the acts of God or the magical realism of the Coen Brothers universe. And an essential component of it is that it's very difficult for any one person to see the entire picture. Mm-hmm. The movie simplifies things a little bit because it's got to be shorter and it's all got to fit in the the tv show has this like extraordinary complexity parts are moving constantly it takes a long time to put all the pieces together and molly kind of eventually does it but we can always see the parts which aren't you know they're not exactly right right do you think that this fargo universe fits into the genre of cosmic horror that there are there are evil things that i can't comprehend that there are things that i just won't be able to get because i've got a limited capacity and the universe is indifferent to me as an existing being yeah i think i think it's a very smart observation uh i think it is um lovecraftian in that way um as i said before malvo being uh pure force of malice um is almost inhuman um and um you know having that having the various sort of acts of god throughout the season i absolutely think that i i think that you have these characters who are um cannot imagine this world i think gus to a certain degree uh bill to another degree um it absolutely is a an example of cosmic horror and i think we see that more in, and we'll talk about it in subsequent podcasts in the second season and even in the third season and maybe even in the fourth season, which I haven't started yet. Yeah, I think that 
you know, it's something in this show that gets highlighted more than I think in the movie, because in the movie, there's not um, as much of the, you know, maybe, maybe it's because I've seen it many times. It doesn't seem as complex, but the the kind of one point where it comes closest to the audience verbally is when um, uh, Margie is driving the blonde hitman. Yeah. Um, Peter Stromero's character. Yeah. Uh, in the car after she, he shot him, she shot him in the leg. And she's kind of just giving this monologue about what was it all for? I mean, there are so many people dead and for like a little bit of money, just a little bit of money. And she, she just doesn't understand what was the point of this all. Yeah. Like why do it this way? And I think that that is something that's preserved in this story, but also the fact that there are so many agents who are acting. No one could, no one could conceive in this universe of the kind of organization that runs Malvo. Right. Mm -hmm. It it is so bizarre um, that like when when Gus experiences it for the first time, when he arrests uh, Malvo and Malvo says, you're making a mistake is what you're going to say in a couple hours when I'm let out of jail. Right. That there's an organization that can conspire in this way to protect their assassins. It's just not something that the average person could conceive of. Right. And I love that it's such an integral part to this story, that there are so many chess pieces moving, and it's not something you could get um, in a movie. Agreed. Uh, any any last thoughts? Um, Lester, who's worse, Lester or Malvo? I have an answer, but I want to hear yours. I think Malvo is definitely worse, um, <clears throat> but who I hate more is Lester. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good answer. I think I think Lester is worse because Malvo is you knew I was a snake when you took me in. You know, he is he's not human. He's a pure force. Lester makes these choices that constantly put him in the abyss. Killing his wife, his first wife, framing his brother. Um, you know, taking advantage of the widow Hess, who is not a sympathetic character, but clearly he knew that she was never going to get the insurance money. It's still a fucked up thing to do. It's a terrible thing to do. And then the worst thing is letting his second wife go to her death, who was just the most, like, sweet character. Sweet, naive, uncomplicated, loved him dearly. I don't like that you say let. He basically forced her death. Because Fair. I, I think it's, and it was something I, until I watched it, you know, multiple times that I picked up, but the fact that he brings his, his classic orange coat, he doesn't put it on. He gets her caught up in the middle of of cooking. Yeah. It's like, let's just go. She's like, I need my coat. And he goes, you won't need a coat, you know, where we're going. <laughs> and then he rubs his hands together. Yeah. Maniacally. Uh, <laughs> you won't need a coat where we're going. And then does his little acting where he starts to get worse because he starts to, and this is why I love Martin Freeman's uh, as an actor, but his lying gets worse and worse and he clearly is like, oh, you should you should wear this coat. She gets out of the car. Then he says to her, wait, 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 come back. Don't want your ears to get cold. Put the hat on. Yeah. He is, he might as well have put the bullet in the fucking gun. It's despicable. And even before that, when they're in Vegas, when he decides to have a drink at the bar and he's kind of like eye fucking the beautiful girl in yeah. the dress, 
you know, and then he sees Lorne Malvo with the, you know, the blonde hair and um, they're in the elevator and Lorne just gives him the yes or no, Lester. This is up to you. This is your choice. Yeah. And Lester's like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to let you get away with this. And because he thinks that he has now been elevated to the level of a god. Um, it's like it's it's like what's worse is like the force of pure evil or the human being that has the choice to make good or evil decisions. And I'm going to opt for the fact that the human being who is capable of good chooses evil every time. Yeah. I think um, my kind of last thought to go back to your conservative point was that this is um, it, if it is intentionally supposed to like make conservatives happy that foreigners are coming in and destroying our country. The great thing the show does is show how everyone is susceptible to some level of evil. The amount of people who are cheating on their wives mm-hmm. constantly that just kind of like lie or are abusive or um, you know are you know really condescending and unhelpful. Yeah. Um, that, that there is a pervasive and accepted wickedness that people in this world have bought into. Yeah. That if you think you're like, you've got con- Christian conservative values, you're just a folksy person, you could be still doing like a lot of damage because you don't want to think about, you know, anything that's outside of your normal yeah. operating procedure. Yeah. Um, we didn't really get a chance to talk much about Molly's dad, uh, but um, we'll save that for the next podcast. When we talk. Him. He is just a phenomenal character. So good. He's uh, he is the character that Clint Eastwood wants to be in certain movies without being a horrible racist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's been our discussion of season one of Fargo. Um, you can find our later discussions as they come out on each of the seasons. Um, uh, you can also find us uh, as Homo Superior on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at Homo Superior Podcast, and Twitter at Homo Superior X. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. You betcha. You betcha. Oh, yeah, sure.